It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman and the rest of the crew. Hello, David. Good morning. And of course, wouldn't be a show without the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, this is about the Capitol Hill Citizen newspaper that we started and its contents in the current edition. Get ready for a really fascinating presentation. On today's program, we have three guests talking about three different topics, all of which have been featured in the latest edition of the Capitol Hill Citizen. First up is Marion Nessel. She is Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at NYU. Her research examines scientific and socioeconomic influences on food choice, obesity, and food safety, with an emphasis on the role of the food industry influence. We're going to talk to her about the junk food lobby and how it contributes to obesity in America. It turns out when Americans eat less, the food industry gets queasy. Then we're going to talk to our good friend and resident constitutional scholar Bruce Fine. Bruce, Ralph, and fellow legal expert Lou Fisher have written an open letter to congressional staffers reminding them that Congress commands awesome powers. In recent years, we've seen Congress abdicate some of its most important duties and hands power over to the executive branch. And congressional offices are besieged by corporate lobbyists who are trying to hijack whatever influence Congress has left. So what are Ralph, Lou Fisher, and Bruce Fine asking staffers to do about it? We'll find out. Finally, we welcome Vishal Shankar of the Revolving Door Project. He was interviewed for the article in the Capitol Hill Citizen that asked, is President Biden okay with letting Postmaster General Louis DeJoy wreck the post office? Biden had the chance to make over the entire post office board and fire DeJoy, who has spent his tenure dismantling mail sorting machines, cutting overtime, restricting deliveries, removing mailboxes, and doing just about everything he can to slow down the mail. Mr. Shunker will offer his insights into why this has happened and what can be done about it. As always, somewhere in the midst of all that, we'll check in with our steadfast corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's talk about the junk food lobby. David? Marion Nessel is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. She is the author of a wide range of books about the politics of food, nutrition, health, and the environment, including Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics, Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat, and Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Marion Nessel. Glad to be here. Yeah, welcome indeed, Marion, to head up our program today, which is going to be on our special newspaper that we've started last year called the Capitol Hill Citizen. Now, there's an article on page one, Marion, called Fat Accompli, Junk Food Lobby in Control Inside the Beltway, meaning the Congress. And you're widely quoted throughout. The article illustrates that the situation is worse than I've ever seen. Even though we've had a lot of documentation in your books, for example, articles, interviews, the work over the years by the Center for Science to Public Interest. So I'm not pessimistic about what has happened in the past. But as usual, the giant food industry and the drug industry counterattack. They beef up their lobbyists on Capitol Hill and they block legislation. Can you give us an up-to-date 
survey on what's going on in Congress by the good guys and what kind of opposition is there and how this fat food lobby has influenced the public health institutions in this country. Well, we're in a situation in which the vast majority of American adults are overweight or have obesity, which means that they're at higher than average risk for chronic diseases such as heart disease, type 2 diabetes, certain kinds of cancers and other problems, high risk for bad outcome for COVID-19. And yet there's no federal program and no federal campaign to try to help people prevent gaining excess weight. And the reason for this seems to me to be pretty simple. And that is that eating less is really bad for business. If you want to prevent obesity, you have to eat less or choose foods that are healthier for you, but take in fewer calories for sure. And doing that is hugely bad for the food industry. And the food industry has done every single thing that it can in order to get people to eat more. It has created what I call an eat more food environment. And the reasons for that trace back to 1980 when President Reagan was elected and deregulated a lot of controls on industry marketing, particularly marketing food to children. And then also to the shareholder value movement. Movement, which started in the early 1980s and which has been widely adopted in the United States, which says that the purpose of corporations is to make money for stockholders and that social purposes are bad for business. And then that's in an environment in which there are twice as many calories available in the U.S. food supply, roughly 4,000 a day per capita, men, women, and little tiny babies, that's twice what the population needs on average. And food companies have to operate in a food environment that is hugely overproduced. And there's lots of politics behind that and in which they have to figure out how to sell their products in this overproduced marketplace in which they are required by Wall Street to not only make a profit, but to increase their profits every 90 days. That's an unsustainable situation. I think it is a sustainable situation because we we can't seem to break it. Obesity leads to shortened lifespan, as you've shown again and again, It leads to all kinds of ailments, youth diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and they want obesity. Not only are they selling these children stuff that tastes good superficially, turning their tongues against their brain, as my mother used to say, to get them to buy the junk food, which is very high in salt, fat, and sugar, but they want them to be obese, to eat more food when they're obese. Isn't that right? Well, the idea, if you want to make a profit and grow your profit every 90 days, you have to sell as much food as possible. And what that food does to public health is not your responsibility because that's the way our system works. I think the best example of what's going on is these new obesity drugs, where studies are coming out that the maker of the main drugs, Novo Nordisk, has put hundreds of millions of dollars into gifts for health and nutrition and obesity specialist influencers. 
to try to get those drugs onto the market as quickly as possible. They cost a lot of money. And there is now the food industry is reacting to these drugs as, wait a minute, if people are on these drugs, they're not going to want our products. And the other aspect of this that's so interesting is that the category of foods that's now called ultra-processed, and this is a new term, relatively new term, that refers to a specific category of junk foods that is industrially produced, uses industrially extracted ingredients, is really high in calorie density, often has a lot of sugar, salt, and fat in it, but not always. And these foods, which you know are best exemplified by corn chips with huge lengthy ingredient lists, we now have a controlled clinical trial that shows that people who are eating these foods take in more calories without realizing it. And these foods are, some people think they're addictive. I'm, I'm not sure they meet the precise definition of addictive, but certainly when people start eating them, they can't stop. And foods have been deliberately formulated to do that. So the whole system is set up to try to get people to eat as much of these extremely profitable products as they can. And this is all about business. This has nothing to do with public health, except the negative part of it. What kind of lobby is there on Congress reflecting what you think should be done, which has been documented for years, you know, we know what, what food is nutritious, what food is also delicious. We know about the Mediterranean diet, a lot of studies on that. There's a huge amount of information. And, and some of it is getting to people around the country. But it seems like Congress is, you know, off the charts here. They're not having the kind of hearings they used to have. And tell us about the lobby and how they've neutralized a lot of public health institutions that you've worked with. Well, the system works in the classic way. These companies, food companies, give donations to a congressional candidates, mostly Republicans these days, in very large amounts of money. They can do that through various kinds of organizations. The Supreme Court ha has said you can't put a limit on these kinds of things. And they also hire lobbyists who are paid very well to work full time to inform Congress about the interests of these particular companies. And, you know, there's a website called Open Secrets that is, you know, as a public service reports these kinds of things. And I'm a consumer of open secrets. And I'm on that site looking at the number of lobbyists that the soft drink industry employs, for example. It's, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 people are paid full time to talk to members of Congress about the interests of these particular companies. They have to report the topics on which they're lobbying, but they don't have to say what their position is. You have to infer that from other information, but you can pretty well guess. They're also going after minority populations, like they fight control on sugared drinks, saying it discriminates against poor people. And in the capital citizen, they say in... October 2022, listen to this, Novo Nordisk sponsored a Congressional Black Caucus Foundation panel to discuss why Medicare should cover expensive obesity drugs like Novo Nordisk, Wagovi, and Ozempic. Talk how they're going after 
low-income people and the groups that are supposed to defend them and pumping all kinds of money into their foundations. I wrote a book called Soda Politics that has a chapter relating this history. It's a very complicated history because years ago, decades ago, the black community was petitioning sugar-sweetened beverage companies to hire them and to advertise in their publications. And Martin Luther King, in the speech that he gave the night before he was assassinated, asked his followers to boycott Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola wasn't hiring and advertising in Black publications. Well, that was before obesity and its consequences became a really big problem in the Black as well as every other community. And certainly when Mayor Bloomberg in New York tried to put a cap on the size of sugar-sweetened beverages sold in New York City, the Black community supported the soda industry in that battle because they had a long relationship with the soda industry and financial ties, very strong financial ties. And also because the Bloomberg administration had not approached the black community to discuss this with them. As I said, it's a very complicated question, but if your job is to sell sugar-sweetened beverages, you don't care who you sell them to. Sell them to everybody. And they don't cost very much so that you can advertise them in Black and Latino and other minority communities. You can sponsor the heroes, the sports and music heroes of those communities. You can fund playgrounds. You can fund programs in schools. You can do everything that you possibly can get away with. Let's show our listeners how bad the situation is since 1980 in terms of the number of people considered obese, defined as a BMI of 30 or higher. Is this accurate? More than 7 out of 10 Americans are overweight or obese, and more than 4 out of 10 are obese. Yeah, those are correct figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that it's roughly 70% of American adults are overweight. And What about teenagers? Well, I think that's the, the percentages are lower, but rising. People gain weight as they get older. They become more sedentary and metabolism drops. So it gets harder and harder to reduce your food intake to the point where you're not gaining weight. I mean, metabolism is really set up to make it as difficult as possible to maintain a healthy weight, especially in an environment where you're confronted with yummy foods all the time, everywhere. And the environment has been set up so that it is okay to eat any place you want to, any time, night or day, and in very large portions. Why isn't the public health groups screaming about the junk food crisis in America? Well, a lot of public health people are, and there's an enormous effort to talk about commercial determinants of health, commercial determinants of poor health, to talk about ultra-processed foods and the need to put to either stop their production or certainly get people to consume less of them, to get people to eat smaller portions of foods. I mean, part of it is that the issue of calories is something that's very complicated for people to understand. It's much easier for people to understand fat and carbohydrate when in fact it doesn't matter 
whether your diet is high in fat or high in carbohydrate. What matters is how many calories you're consuming. And if you want to lose weight, you could lose weight on almost any kind of diet if you reduce the calories you're consuming. But dieting's no fun. Food is wonderful. It's one of life's greatest pleasure. There's a lot of it around. It doesn't cost very much. You may think it costs very much, but relative to other kinds of commodities, there's a huge policy effort to keep the cost of food low to the point where farmers can hardly make a living. I mean, real farmers, not industrial farmers. I mean, at what point do we have to get the criminal laws involved here? We're dealing here with premature death, an enormous increase in illnesses at an early age, and the projections for diabetes for the whole population is too scary even to talk about over the next 30 years. Yeah, I I mean, what you're talking about is a problem fundamentally in Congress. In 1979, you may remember that the Federal Trade Commission attempted to do something that to me seemed like the mildest thing in the world. They were going to restrict the advertising of junk food to kids on television. Um, And the pushback on that was so severe that the head of the Federal Trade Commission was fired and Congress passed a law. We have a law on the books that says that the Federal Trade Commission can do nothing to restrict the marketing of foods to children on television. They're not allowed to do that. So what we're talking about here is a situation in which Congress is so corrupt that it cannot take on anything that will fight the food industry. I mean, this is corruption at the highest level, which is why when I'm asked, what's my first, if I were the czar, the czarina of food, what would I do? My first question is, is get money out of politics. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Professor Marion Nessel, who has written all kinds of materials exposing the fast food and junk food lobby for decades. Bye. Thanks, everybody. We've been speaking with Marion Nessel. We will link to her work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now we're going to quickly segue into our next segment, which features Bruce Fine and the letter he, Lou Fisher, and Ralph wrote to congressional staffers that is featured in the Capitol Hill Citizen. David? Bruce Fine is a constitutional scholar and international law expert. Mr. Fine was Associate Deputy Attorney General under Ronald Reagan and is the author of Constitutional Peril, The Life and Death Struggle for Our Constitution and Democracy, and American Empire Before the Fall. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Bruce Fine. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Bruce, before we get to an article in the Capitol Citizen that we composed, called An Open Letter to the Congressional Staff, I want to tell listeners, you have a long article in the same edition of Capitol Citizen on titled, Congress Shall Have the Power to Declare War, which is given up to the president, regardless of party, who can start wars just by presidential fiat, as both Democrat and Republican presidents have done in the last few decades. And this is very serious in your judgment, because if Congress retains the power to declare war and has public hearings, the history has been that Congress is much more reluctant to start wars than the person in the White House. And that was exactly the vision and anticipation of the founders who wrote the Constitution 
especially James Madison, who thought that the, putting the war-making power in the legislature instead of the White House, another King George possibly, was one of the greatest achievements in that big hot room that summer in 1787 in Philadelphia. So I urge our listeners to read Bruce's very detailed historic argument. Not only does Congress have the exclusive power, but we would have far fewer wars if Congress was required to take responsibility and hold public hearings. Now, you've testified over 200 times before Congress. Maybe it's a Guinness Book (laughs) World of Records. I don't know. And you go up there all the time in one office after another, and you've been stunned by how inexperienced and ahistorical in terms of knowledge that the increasingly younger congressional staff have shown you. So you you were one of the prompters of this open letter to congressional staff. Why is that important? Ralph, it's important in major part because the members who come to Congress at present generally are clueless about their constitutional prerogatives, duties, responsibilities, because their entire lives, certainly since Korea has been lived, where the president basically decides everything and Congress kind is a spectator on the scene, a phenomenon has grown more pronounced since the dissolution of the Soviet Union and then the huge expansion of the military industrial security complex that now captures well over 50% of all discretionary expenditures of the federal government. We've been in a permanent state of war since 9-11 with no end in sight. And because of that, they need more and more, if you will, people who are professional, who've been around for many, many years, so they have institutional memory. They can remember the Fulbright hearings on Vietnam that helped bring the Vietnam War to a close. They can remember the church committee hearings on the national security state and all the lies. They can remember that there are ways in which you can have oversight of the executive without compromising security. You can have this, you know sessions in executive session that are secret or go in and, and, and visit some of the intelligence agency offices and take notes and get a real understanding of what's going on because none of these things happen anymore. It's very, very apparent to anybody who walks in and talks to the staff, typically legislate chiefs of staff, legislative assistants, they're 25, 26 years old. They just out of law school at best. They themselves know very little because since Newt Gingrich became speaker, I believe that was 1995 when Congress turned Republican, he's downsized the legislative branch's resources. So you really can't make a career anymore about being in the legislative branch as an employee or as an as an aide. And so everybody leaves after a couple of years to go to K Street and become a lobbyist. And so with this rapid turnover, you kind of have a lobotomized Congress. And what this letter was attempting to do was to say, listen, Congress still, when the architecture of the Constitution is honored, is the primary predominant branch among the three branches. It's simply you're not exercising. And you need to take the time and opportunity through tutorials that we try to offer, reading, studying, and then lobbying your member. You need to stand up and do X, Y, Z. Just one example that we see recently with regard to the unconditional assistance, weapons and otherwise, we're giving to Israel in their campaign in Gaza against Hamas. 
no conditions, no debate, nothing, you know, just goes down. I mean, so the members and the staff should be there. It's happened at the State Department say this is not acceptable. We have to have a debate. And so there needs to be kind of lobbying the member. You need to get out there, do X, Y, Z, because you know, the member spends vast amount of time raising money. They're not reading the Federalist Papers or the various and sundry Geneva Conventions, the Convention Against Genocide, Convention Against Torture. So the staff is very, very important. So the whole purpose of the letter is say you have a lot more power than you're exercising. You should be energized, you know, to master the true authority of Congress and then exercise it, even if it means raising it with your boss. Well, you know, my experience sitting in congressional offices recently is that they think of their role, the staff, as if they're valets. It's at a low point. And we tried to get him to read this book by Mike Perchuk, the famous chief of staff for Senator Warren Magnuson in the 60s and 70s, who got so many of these wonderful consumer and environmental worker bills through Congress. He wrote a book in 2017, as you know, Bruce, called When the Senate Worked for Us. And you can't get anybody there to read it. And it's directed toward elevating the staff's role to become informed, to be a key advisor on major necessities of the American people and around the world for their senators and representatives. So what do you think can change here? Because more of the staff is coming from these K Street lobbying, corporate lobbying firms. They park the staff with, for example, Republican senators and representatives get a little on-the-job training find out what's going on. Then they go back to their corporate lobbying firms full of know-how and know-who to make more money for their corporate clients. What do you think can be done here? Yeah, well, then I just to add a little footnote to what you said, Ralph, not only that, but the executive branch, especially the Defense Department, they detail their employees to spy on what's going on in the offices of the Armed Services Committee, the Appropriations Committee for Defense Department and otherwise, you know? So... And, and, and the members, they say, they take them. Well, we don't have to pay them. The Department of Defense is paying them. So the whole thing is infiltrated. The Pentagon has an office in the House and Senate. They actually have an office in the Rayburn office building where you see uniformed colonels and majors coming in and out, going to their assignments in specific offices. Doesn't this contradict the separation of powers? It surely does. It is just truly amazing. Yeah, you rock right down. The Rayburn building and the Longworth building is long corridor before you go to the cafeteria and there on the left. It isn't just one. The Marines, the Navy, the Army, the Coast Guard, they all got offices there. Now, I can guarantee you I've been at the Pentagon. You think there's any congressional office that's sitting at the Pentagon spending, you know, one and a half trillion a year? Not presence anywhere where Congress clearly could do that. There's no doubt that under the Constitution, Congress could designate office space in the executive branch where members of Congress or their staff have authority to sit and do work as part of their oversight function. They don't do any of that, but the vice versa happens all of the time. They're right in the office space, the legislative branch. And that's why you will find today, it's characteristic that any important legislation is initially drafted, not in the Congress, by the executive branch or by lobbyists say, okay, here it is, you can work with it. So. The Congress changes a few commas and semicolons, but otherwise, it's outside parties that do this. How would you turn it around? Well, 
I've proposed, Ralph, in the booklet that I what we wrote, or I wrote called Congressional Strategy. You need to have a congressional constitutional college or university where you can constantly have right up adjacent to the office buildings courses. You can do it online today. You don't have to be in person. But people who have institutional memory, this is what your rights prerogatives are. This is what the Supreme Court said. This is the various ways in which you do things. So you're arming them with knowledge. Okay, now I know how to do X, Y, Z to get this information. And it should be available to both members of Congress and the staff. They've stripped mind the staff. The committees don't have adequate staff to deal with their tasks. They've cut the government accounting office. They've cut the Office of Technology Assessment completely. They've defunded it. So there's no advice by technically qualified people about issues like weapon systems, nuclear power, invasions of privacy by surveillance innovations, etc. It is so bad. That's what prompted us to start this Capitol Hill citizen. A bright spot occurred about two years ago. A young staffer with Congressman Jamie Raskin, Jacob Wilson, organized the Congressional Progressive Staff Association. And he has over 2,000 staff in the House and Senate who become members, and they want to try to change the situation. And it's 50-50 that listeners have a senator or representative with the staffer who belongs to the Congressional Progressive Staff Association. So look it up and get involved. And that's a way you can connect and get you know beyond the lobbyists and the minders that shield the members of Congress from the people back home. Well, we're out of time, Bruce, but I do want to point out that in this issue that Bruce has his article on congressional war power, there's also an article by Tom O'Brien on why unions are losing to corporations on Capitol Hill and around the country. So there's just a lot of good information to make you a Capitol Hill citizen. So thank you very much, Bruce, for your work. And obviously, we'll continue with our discussion on Capitol Hill with you on the program in the future. Thank you very much, Ralph. We've been speaking with Bruce Fine. We'll link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we're going to talk about why is Louis DeJoy still in charge of the post office? But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, December 8, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. Swiss private bank, Bank Pictet, has admitted to conspiring with U.S. taxpayers and others to hide more than $5.6 billion in more than 1,600 secret bank accounts in Switzerland and elsewhere and to conceal the income generated in those accounts from the IRS. Bank Pictet entered into a deferred prosecution agreement and will pay $122 million to the U.S. Treasury. The resolution is one of a series of cases brought by the Justice Department in connection with its investigation since 2008 into facilitation of offshore U.S. tax evasion by foreign banks. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Ralph, Hannah, and the rest of the team. Now, Louis DeJoy was a Trump appointee. Joe Biden has had over three years to get rid of him. Why is he still there? David? 
Vishal Shankar is a senior researcher at the Revolving Door Project, which scrutinizes executive branch appointees to ensure they use their office to serve the broad public interest rather than to entrench corporate power or seek personal advancement. He has also worked at Inequality Media, as well as several government offices, nonprofits, and policy research projects. His work has appeared in the American Prospect and Common Dreams, and he has been quoted in The New Republic, The Lever, and The Capitol Hill Citizen. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Vishal Shankar. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome indeed, especially because you really zeroed in on the U.S. Postal Service, which is such a great institution historically to bind the country together, started by Benjamin Franklin way back when. And there's been almost three years of the Biden administration, and the Trump nominee, Louis DeJoy, is still the postmaster general. How long do people have to wait to stop his destructive impact, which we'll get to, on the Postal Service delivery process and pricing process before the Democrats replace them? Why haven't they had a majority on the Board of Governors? Can you bring us up to date here? Absolutely. That's an excellent question, Ralph. And I can't tell you how many times I've been asked that myself whenever I've written about the Postal Service. My emails and my comments are full of a very valid question. Why, if President Biden has been the president for nearly four years, is Trump crony Louis DeJoy still in office? And the answer is unfortunately very simple, which is that when it comes to the Postal Board of Governors, which is the only entity that can directly fire Louis DeJoy, Biden has unfortunately nominated some DeJoy supporters to this board, the worst of whom is a man named Derek Kahn. He's actually a Republican, a former aide to Mitch McConnell and later to McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao, when she ran the Department of Transportation. And he's enjoyed a very lucrative revolving door career in the private sector. He's been a management consultant for Bain. He's been a senior executive for Lyft, the rideshare company, and advised a real estate company, Toll Brothers, and a predatory private equity firm, Oak Tree Capital. So the nomination of Derek Kahn was really quite puzzling, particularly given the partisan balance requirements of the board did not require Biden to nominate a Republican. He could have nominated another Democrat or even an independent. But instead, he nominated this DeJoy supporting Republican. Another troubling Biden nominee to the board is a man named Dan Tangerlini, a Democrat who sort of failed upwards in his career. In the late 2000s, he was embroiled in an ethics scandal surrounding a education consulting firm that he co-founded, EdBuild. During the Obama years, he ran the General Services Administration, a time at which he was actually protested by federally contracted service workers for failing to combat wage theft. And it was also during this time that Tangerlini, as head of the GSA, leased DC's historic old post office building to none other than Donald Trump, who turned it into the infamous Trump DC hotel. And just like Trump and just like Derek Kahn, Dan Tangerlini has also dallied in real estate. He's been a senior executive at Artemis Real Estate Partners, a predatory private equity firm owned by the Pritzker family that has made disturbing investments in residential real estate and in hospitals. And Tangerlini himself has said something that quite deeply alarmed me when he was nominated to the Postal Board, which is that he wanted to, quote, explore efficiencies in the Postal Service's real estate portfolio. Given this man's background and really given what 
postal management has been doing over the last decade, selling off historic postal buildings to real estate investors who buy these properties for pennies on the dollar and flip them for multi-millions. This was the background of a man not willing to stand up to Louis DeJoy. So at this point, Biden has actually nominated five of the nine postal governors, which on paper should be enough to fire DeJoy. But with those nominations of Tangerlini and Khan, he squandered the golden opportunity to give the board an anti-DeJoy majority. What's his motivation to continue this other than he's really out of it? Because he kept the head of the IRS appointed by Trump, who, before he headed the IRS, was a corporate loophole lawyer making tons of money. And he kept him on for two years into his administration, the Biden administration. What's going on? Are we dealing with a Trojan horse here? Are we dealing with Biden being Delaware Joe? (laughs) I mean, that's another great point, Ralph, on Chuck Reddick, the Trump-appointed IRS commissioner. If I had to speculate, because really Biden hasn't given a proper explanation for why he's dragged his feet on giving the Postal Board an anti-DeJoy majority, it's that he just simply doesn't view removing Louis DeJoy as a top priority. A lot of the immediate sabotage attempts that DeJoy made at the agency in his first week, the slowdowns in the mail, the removal of the mailboxes and sorting machines, a lot of those have sort of been halted by the courts. And so the crisis is not as immediate to Biden, his voters, his supporters, and they very wrongly believe, in my opinion, that they can work with this man who is proven to be untrustworthy, a Republican mega donor and partisan hack, and most importantly, a, a committed privatizer of the United States Postal Service. Well, aren't there two more appointees that are coming in this month where he could control the Board of Governors to fire DeJoy? Yes, that's actually a very well-timed question. And depending on how you measure it, Biden has actually had this ability since December of last year. December 8th, 2022 was when the terms for two Trump-nominated board members, Lee Moak and William Zollers, both of whom were DeJoy supporters, actually expired. So last December was really the earliest opportunity for Biden to replace these two and make his sixth and seventh nominations to the Postal Board. For reasons unbeknownst to me and as of yet unexplained, Biden declined to take up this opportunity, which allowed Mokin Zollers to serve an additional extra year on the board in what are called holdover terms. Now, those terms actually just expired this week, Friday, December 8th, 2023. So as of this point, those seats are sitting vacant. And it's a golden opportunity for Biden to rectify his past mistakes and nominate two candidates to the Postal Board who will be committed opponents of Louis DeJoy, stop his destructive agenda, and fire him. And I and a lot of postal advocates at the Take on Wall Street Postal Coalition have endorsed former Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence and postal policy expert Sarah Anderson to fill these two vital seats. Well, let's go down to where the post people are delivering the mail and the post offices are strapped to be unable to provide the service that the people need. Let's go through five points that you know a lot about. One is five successive postal rate increases under DeJoy. Explain. Sure. So this is part of DeJoy's Delivering for America plan, what he has called his 10-year strategic vision for the Postal Service 
that he claims will finally rebalance the Postal Service's finances, will bring in the revenue needed to offset expenses and secure its future. Now, that's what he claims. The reality could not be farther from the truth. Sustained postal rate increases, an authority that DeJoy has tapped into at every opportunity possible, will only drive business away from the Postal Service and into the arms of its competitors. And indeed, you're seeing that it's it's already starting to do so. DeJoy had projected under this 10-year plan, which began being rolled out two years ago, that this year would be the year where the Postal Service finally broke even on its finances. Instead, it has reported a $6.5 billion net loss under this DeJoy stealth privatization scheme. Setting aside even the question of whether we should be running public services like this as profit-seeking enterprises. So these sustained postal rate increases are a terrible idea. They're counterproductive to the long-term health of the postal service. And really just one of the many damaging aspects in this 10-year plan, it calls for closing a lot of smaller post offices and local sorting facilities in favor of these new regional sorting centers, which will add extra commute time to the daily commutes of postal workers and lead many even to drop out of the postal workforce. One of the most alarming aspects of this plan, which DeJoy bafflingly has bragged about in public, is that over the next 10 years, he wants to eliminate 50,000 jobs from the agency's payroll. I mean, 50,000 jobs. These are jobs that have been good jobs, good union-paying jobs, and reliable pathways into the middle class for many, many American workers, particularly non-white workers who for far too long were locked out of the American dream. The Postal Service gave them that shot, that opportunity, and Louis DeJoy wants to rip it all away. Well, you've gone into the second one, just from what you just said. The third point is he has to replace the fleet of postal trucks because they're old and they're inefficient. He resisted moving into the electric truck arena until there was a lot of criticism. And then he cut a deal with Oshkosh Defense Corporation. Describe that. Certainly. I mean, well, you nailed it, Ralph. And I think DeJoy and especially his PR team have been trying to convince credulous journalists in the mainstream press, particularly at Politico and Time, that he has turned over a new leaf, that he's entered a second act, that he's Biden's climate ally on the fleet. And this is so, so far from the truth, which is that at every possible step of the way, Louis DeJoy has opposed further electrification of the postal fleet. His initial draft plan with Oshkosh Defense only called for 10% of the fleet to be electric. The remaining 90% would have been a gas-guzzling trucks that rated at a shocking 8.6 miles per gallon fuel efficiency and would have locked in 20 million metric tons of carbon emissions over the next 20 years. It was only after Louis DeJoy was sued by multiple climate groups and labor unions that feeling that pressure, he slowly upped the purchase quota of electric vehicles, initially to 40%, and now at its current level, 62%, which I should note still leaves 40% of a potential fleet as gas guzzler combustion engines. Now, I will note that the Postal Service's own inspector general in a report last year found that the post office need not stop at 60% electric. In fact, 95% of current Postal Service routes 
could actually be served by electric vehicles without the need for any major uh, infrastructure changes or investments. And that the long-term cost of a fully electric fleet would actually be cheaper for the Postal Service in the long run than any mix of combustion, gas, and electric. So that's on the, the climate aspect of the plan. But the far more alarming part of this contract, which I very rarely see mentioned in the press, disappointingly, is that these vehicles are going to be built 100% with non-union scab labor. This is through a company called Oshkosh Defense, which is actually based here in Wisconsin, in the city of Oshkosh, that has cultivated over the years a well-deserved reputation for high-quality vehicles built by its long-unionized UAW workforce in the city of Oshkosh. The company had promised for the months leading up to this contract that if it were to build the postal delivery vehicles, they would use an existing facility in Wisconsin to make them and use union workers to do so. But as soon as the contract was announced, Oshkosh pulled a bait and switch. They said they weren't going to build these trucks in Wisconsin. They were actually going to move production to Spartanburg, South Carolina, one of the most notoriously anti-union and anti-worker states. And crucially there, uh, the factories and the facilities weren't even up and running. They had to convert, I believe, a Rite Aid warehouse into a vehicle manufacturing plant. Whereas if they built in Wisconsin, not only were the facilities primed and ready to build these trucks, but the workers were eager to be a part of this. They were excited to be a part of the electric vehicle transition and to get these good union jobs. So I'll quickly shout out UAW Local 578, which is the UAW union up here in Oshkosh, which has been attending every postal board meeting that I can recall of the last two years, urging the board to investigate DeJoy's negotiations with Oshkosh and whether he knew beforehand that the company was going to pull this bait and switch and to call for the contract to be renegotiated so that it is fully union built. And I think that's something that not only the Postal Board should look into, but Biden, who claims to be the most pro-union president since FDR, should really speak out against this disgusting union-busting move by Oshkosh Defense. Well, we've exposed Joe Biden pro-union in an article in a Capitol citizen recently. He can't sustain that, but in terms of his political career. Now, DeJoy prides himself on saying he wants to expand the reach of the post office and bring it new revenue. What about beer and wine? Is that still prohibited or can the Postal Service deliver it? And what other areas, postal banking, etc., that he's pretty sluggish and not furthering? Well, certainly. Well, I'd have to check on the beer and wine thing. I'm not as particularly familiar with that. I don't believe that's changed. But on the broader question of expanding services and bringing in revenue, DeJoy has been one of the single biggest impediments to piloting or expanding to creative new ideas that can grow out the Postal Service for decades to come. I'm thinking specifically of financial services like low-fee ATMs or expanded check cashing at post offices that DeJoy has been very reluctant to either invoke existing authority to expand or to work with Congress to expand. Another proposal, which I know, Ralph, you have been a longtime proponent of, is bringing back postal banking, a system we used to have in this country for, I believe, about 50 years until the banking lobby decided that it was a threat to their profits and lobbied to kill it. This could be a service that would not only bring in much needed revenue to the Postal Service, but also serve unbanked and underbanked communities across the country who have been left behind by Wall Street greed. 
And there's many, many other proposals that postal advocates have laid out as part of a people's postal agenda that DeJoy has simply refused to consider from public Wi-Fi in postal lobbies, which would be a lifeline to communities who have been left behind on the wrong side of the digital divide. Public vehicle charging stations for electric vehicles at post offices or grocery delivery with local grocery stores, particularly for communities where people are elderly or immunocompromised and can't as easily go to the grocery store to get their groceries. The Postal Service could be providing a very valuable lifeline here, but DeJoy has very stubbornly refused to consider these great potential ideas and is doubling down on service cuts and rate hikes as the only way he thinks he can run the agency. Yeah, you raise the prices, reduce the service, not exactly going to succeed in any enterprise. He sits in his air-conditioned office in downtown Washington, looking out from his broad glass windows during the hottest summer on record in the United States. And how's he treating all these postal workers, sweating it out day after day? Well, I'll tell you, Ralph, it's it's absolutely shameful, the blind eye that Louis DeJoy has turned to the postal workforce in these hot summer months. As I noted in the article that I wrote, this heat wave this past summer, a direct result of climate change, was one of the deadliest for the postal workforce. A postal worker in Dallas, I believe, tragically died while on the job. And many postal workers have raised complaints to the press, to management, that there are insufficient protections at the agency to keep workers from collapsing or losing their lives on the job because of extreme heat. But DeJoy, in spite of these complaints, I mean, workers have even mentioned that their managers are telling them to falsify safety documents related to the USPS Health Illness Prevention Program. DeJoy has turned a blind eye to all of this. He has yet to outline any solutions after multiple members of Congress grilled him on this back in July of improvements that he would make to this illness prevention program to make sure that carriers aren't losing their their lives on their routes. He had nothing to say about this at the most recent postal board meetings. Contrast that to postal governor Ron Stroman, one of the few DeJoy critics on the postal board, who spoke at length about the toll that this deadly summer heat was taking on postal carriers and urged the agency to adjust its delivery hours or provide cold water bottles to carriers on these long routes. So it, it, it really is shameful that Louis DeJoy is doing this, but it really shouldn't be surprising considering what we know about the man. I think if we if we want a postal service that values and protects its carriers and its employees, Louis DeJoy has to go. Well, Congressman Pascrell from New Jersey has called uh, DeJoy, quote, DeJoy's record is one of corruption and deconstruction, end quote. Is he currying favor with the commercial third-class mailers and making the first-class residential users of the Postal Service pay the freight? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I'm not really sure who Louis DeJoy's allies are at this point, probably the biggest industry players and those who are actively seeking to privatize the Postal Service. I mean, you mentioned the corruption that Congressman Pascrell noted to. DeJoy has incurred so many ethics scandals over just the three years he's been Postmaster General that even I've lost count. He's owned stock in XPO Logistics, a contractor that he actually used to run before becoming Postmaster General. And just shortly after he joined the agency, signed a very lucrative contract 
with the United States Postal Service. He's owned stock in UPS, in Amazon, in Abbott Laboratories, which manufactured the at-home COVID tests that the Postal Service mailed out two years ago. But if we're talking about business, it's crucial to note that the changes that DeJoy has implemented, the rate hikes, the extended delivery windows, the overall reduction of reliability in the Postal Service is a huge detriment not only to day-to-day customers of the Postal Service or, or people who rely on timely delivery of the mail, but also to small business and to e-commerce sellers who really do rely on the Postal Service having affordable rates and reliable service to keep their livelihoods running. And I think so long as Louis DeJoy remains in power, his agenda is not only a threat to people who rely on the mail for life-saving medications or for timely delivery of paychecks and bills, but also for these uh, small businesses and e-commerce sellers who need a well-working and affordable postal service to run their businesses. You know, just to conclude, we've been talking with Vishal Shankar, who is a senior researcher with the Revolving Door Project, you know, between business and government, so-called Washington Wall Street merry-go-round. Thank you, Vishal Shankar, for your interest, and I hope listeners will pick up on some of his insights and recommendations, especially turning that Board of Governors around in the month of December. Yeah, my pleasure. And do you mind, actually, if I just give a few quick plugs for resources that listeners might find uh, useful? Sure. So if you're interested in learning more about the campaign to save the post office, please check out the excellent work of Steve Hutkins at savethepostoffice.com, who's done a masterful job of tracking every detail of DeJoy's agenda. The take on Wall Street. Yes, indeed. We've had him on the show. He's a one-man show. Yep. Steve is a machine. Also check out the Take on Wall Street, Save the Post Office Coalition, and join their mailing list for updates on these board nominations. Amplify the work of UAW Local 578. These are the auto workers in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, who are fighting for a fair union-made contract for these electric vehicles. And if you haven't already, please do watch the great documentary, The Great Postal Heist, which goes into the, the long history of the Postal Service and neoliberal attempts to privatize it and which features as one of the talking heads, Mr. Ralph Nader. (laughs) Well, it's good to have you on the show, and we hope to continue this effort in future weeks. And you want to read more about the Postal Service? It's in the current issue of the Capital Citizen. Michelle, why don't you give our listeners how they can contact the Revolving Door Project that you are a part of? Certainly. You can find our work online at therevolvingdoorproject.org. You can also find us on any of the major social media platforms, even if certain tech billionaires would rather that we not be on those platforms. And we have a a weekly feature in the American Prospect for anyone who, who reads that magazine. We've been talking with Vishal Shankar, senior researcher with the Revolving Door Project. Thank you very much, Vishal. Thank you, Ralph. It was a pleasure to be here. Ralph, not surprisingly, you had an editorial in the Capitol Hill Citizen. Tell us uh, what that was all about. Well, it's pretty transformative. It's just two small bills that I propose that could change the way Congress operates tremendously. One is, anytime our government gets into armed conflict or wars overseas, all able-bodied and age-qualified children and grandchildren of all members of Congress are conscripted into the armed forces, either for civilian 
work or for military work. If that happens, you can be sure they will be very cautious about plunging our sons and daughters and our treasury into these wars of empire all over the world because they'll have skin in the game, which they don't at the present time. And the second bill is that Congress would be prohibited from giving itself any benefits like health insurance, life insurance, etc., that they don't give to the American people to, in effect, level the playing field so that we don't have a plutocratic Congress getting off with all kinds of perks and benefits with millions of Americans deprived of health insurance and other benefits. And I describe those two bills and challenge any member of Congress to introduce them. But if the first member of Congress introduces those two short bills, they're going to generate a huge public discussion in this country coming from conservative and liberal families. All right. Thank you very much for that, Ralph. Capitol Hill Citizen, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. I want to thank our guests again, Marion Nessel, Bruce Fine, and Vishal Shankar. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up. We're going to have a lot of material for you folks. But The Wrap-Up also features Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. We had way too much show to fit it all in in one hour of radio. Up first, here's the rest of Ralph's conversation with Marion Nessel. Plus, Steve and David ask Marion some questions. You know, I, I remember that I'm old enough to know that you remember this change that occurred in the early 1980s when all of a sudden food was sold everywhere in libraries, in bookstores. I can remember when you weren't allowed to take a cup of coffee into a bookstore. Uh, you know, there were signs on the wall of the NYU library where I work, all kinds of signs saying, if you bring food in here, you're expelled instantly. Now there are cafes in the library. The tobacco industry suffering reduced sales because more people aren't smoking. They bought up a lot of these food companies like Kraft, General Foods, Nabisco. And so they're in the fat food industry themselves and pushing it. Not anymore. They got out of it. Um, Those have been sold off and they're no longer involved in that. But they certainly were for a while. And while they were in charge, they made sure that those food companies followed the tobacco industry playbook to the letter, which means you blame personal responsibility. It's not our fault you're eating our products. We're not holding a gun up to your head. It's your fault. Personal responsibility, self-regulation, they're arguing for all the time. We can regulate ourselves. You don't have to 
do anything. They cast doubt on any research that suggests that there's something wrong with their products and unhealthy about their products. They fund their own research to show that their products are fine. And I'm seeing this now in the pushback against the concept of ultra-processed foods, where research report after research report after research report is coming out and saying, ooh, ultra-processed foods, they're not defined very carefully. They don't make any sense. You can eat these, you can eat those. Really, they're not doing anything when in fact there are now hundreds of studies that link ultra-processed food consumption to obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and all of the other collection of problems that come with being overweight. You know, there's a big pushback on the whole issue of overweight, but in general, it's a risk factor for poor health later on. And it would probably be better if people weren't, you know, if 70% of the population wasn't overweight. I'm just shocked looking at pictures of school classes now and comparing them to pictures of my kids' school classes. Kids are heavier now. Let's talk about Coca-Cola for a minute. It's given millions to the NAACP, the Hispanic Federation, both directly and through front groups like the American Beverage Association. And it's all over Congress. And tell us how many teaspoons of sugar are in a classic Coca-Cola can? How many teaspoons of sugar? 10 teaspoons of sugar in a 12-ounce can. 10 teaspoons? Yeah. I mean, people just don't know that. If, no, if, you, no, if you gave people a can of Coca-Cola and everything was in it except the sugar, and you handed a teaspoon to a person and say, put the amount of sugar you think you'd like in this can, I've tested that before audiences, and almost nobody goes above three teaspoons. So it's not even labeled 10 teaspoons and a little can of classic Coca-Cola. Yeah. I mean, it's, the way that I think of it is it's roughly a teaspoon per ounce. I mean, it's a little bit, it's five sixths of a teaspoon per ounce. There's a lot of sugar in full sugar soft drinks. I mean, really a lot of sugar, a shocking amount, but the flavors are balanced in a way so it doesn't taste sickeningly sweet to most people. That There's enough acidity in it so that you don't taste it and the flavors mask it. And they do. Everybody has done consumer testing and people really like it when it's got that much sugar in it. And if they reduce the sugar, people don't like it. And then that gets into the whole issue of artificial sweeteners, which is a whole separate issue. I know our listeners are starting to say, look, what about responsibility of the eater here? And my first answer is, when you were growing up watching TV and watching the massive advertising for junk food on children's programs, not to mention the regular programming, did you ever see any ads that were advocating vegetables, celery, radishes, cauliflower, carrots, and they would squish their facial expression and say, no, of course not. Well, of course not, because there's a seduction involved here. You seduce young people with fat, sugar, and salt and give the clear impression that it's good for them with little cartoons and all the rest of it. So they're, they're getting these kids hooked very easily to nag their parents. And in a food lunch program, when some schools tried to 
put in some good vegetables, etc., the students would throw it aside because their very taste buds have been conditioned by these corporate addictors. Ms. Nessel, what is the role of the diet industry in all of this? Because it seems like there might be the same sort of forces at work. Well, there you're getting at a question that when I'm at my most cynical, I ask, which is to what industry, what industry would benefit if people ate more healthfully? And I'm hard pressed to think of any because lots of people benefit from people being overweight and potentially ill. And that includes the diet industry. It includes the medical industry. It includes, I mean, you just can go down the list. In fact, you know, when I got serious about trying to get an answer to that question, the only one that I could come up with were not-for-profit health maintenance organizations like Kaiser Permanente, who do better if their patient population is healthier, but really nobody else. And that's the way our economic system is set up. And unless we do something to change that or put some regulatory controls on it, we're in trouble. David? The farm bill, when is it up for renewal? Now. And and, and what should we be paying attention to? Oh, the farm bill. I wrote an article for Politico once called The Farm Bill Drove Me Crazy. I once made the mistake of teaching a course on it, an act of hubris that I regret to this day because it's too big to understand. There's just so much in it, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of programs, each with its own devoted set of lobbyists. But it's up for renewal right now. In fact, it's, it expired and has been extended by Congress into 2024. They're working on trying to change it, but there are huge battles about it, not least because for reasons of history, SNAP, the food stamp program, is in it and takes up most of its funding. And Congress badly wants to cut the amount of money that's being spent on food stamps. But those are totally tied up with everything else. Marion, to add to your point on campaign finance reform, getting corporate money out of politics, there's a, I wrote an article in the current issue of Capital Citizen proposing a very simple way to do that. Almost every corporation of any size does business with the federal government. The federal government is the consumer of all kinds of goods and services, from energy to medicines to food to munitions, you name it. It's the biggest consumer in the country. And the consumer is always right. So when the government contracts for these goods and services, they can require that these companies do not give any money to any members of Congress or anybody in the White House for election or re-election, pro or con. It's part of the contract, and that passes constitutional muster because it's under a contractual arrangement that they voluntarily agreed to, relinquishing their right to fund candidates for elective office. Very simple, and the citizen groups would get behind it because it's very hard to reverse that bad Citizens United Supreme Court decision, given who's on the court, not to mention a constitutional amendment. Do it by government procurement. Next, Ralph and Bruce Fine dig into some more of Bruce's ideas for enriching congressional staffers, and Hannah digs into the lack of support for workplace enrichment in Congress. You give tutorials. You actually get some members of Congress 
and staff on a Zoom call, how's that going? And, and what do you try to tutor them about? Well, it's a summary, really, of this booklet I'm showing, Congressional Surrender, which chronicles the massive hemorrhaging of power from the legislative to the executive branch over many years. But the tutorials are calculated to explain to the staff, these are your prerogatives, these are your rights, this is how you can get information out of the executive branch. No, the president can't go to war on his own. You can impeach the president if he tries to do that. You have inherent contempt power. You don't need to go to court in order to extract information from the executive branch. No, the president can't substitute an executive agreement for treaties. He can't do executive orders for legislation. You need to stop that immediately. So I try to arm them with the information that would give them ideas to enable them to do their job better. The biggest problem they confront every day is they don't have access to information. We now have secret to government. Transparency is the exception, not the rule. And for almost 100 years, the inherent contempt power of Congress has been dormant. 100 years. They don't want to exercise it, even though it means that you can get information immediately. Somebody doesn't give it to you or testify, you put them in prison. You find them. And then the information is relevant politically. Now, it's a little bit disappointing, Ralph, in the sense that these tutorials elicit very, very few questions back. Okay, well, how can I do this, Mr. Fine? I'm confronting this problem. They just listen, and we get one of the hosts asked a question or two, and then it all goes away, and there's no follow-up. I once asked, and I tried to organize, and this is very from a very large sample, well over 1,000 staff members. I said, just give me five or six who will show up on Saturdays. We'll go over all of this stuff so you could have sustained follow-up. You know, In writing, this is what we yeah. want to do, our sample bills. Couldn't yeah. get a single one. I mean, I don't understand, you know, when Ralph and I were going to Harvard Law School, we had Saturday classes, right? We didn't feel that we were slaves. You can't get to anybody, you know, after nine to five, it's gone. <laughs> Just to show how serious an issue this is that Bruce is talking about, listeners, Bruce, tell them about the many multi-billion dollar funded National Security Agency that was caught a few years ago spying electronically on everybody, Dragnet violations of the Fourth Amendment. This is the National Security Agency, which Ralph referenced. It wasn't created by Congress. It was created in 1952 by a classified secret memorandum that President Truman sent the Secretary of Defense. A secret, it has no statutory charter. Truman just created by, say, a memorandum. It's now got, what, 40, 50,000 people. It basically spies on the entire world. It gathers so much information that they don't even have it. They have to invent a new number to describe the volume of information and, and data that they've collected. It's rampant with lies and illegalities, violates Fourth Amendment rights because they operate without any warrants, without any individualized warrants. Well, if you could have some information that sometime could be relevant, they'll intercept it. They'll store it. James Clapper, who was the director of national intelligence, a colleague of Michael Hayden, you know, he knowingly lied to Congress when he was asked under oath by Senator Juan Wrighton, are you collecting data on millions of Americans? He was collecting data on everybody. He said, no, we're not. He said, well, that was an oversight. No, he, he missed by 330 million. So we have this national security agency monster created. And, by, and to uh, this day, to this day, there's no congressional charter that there is for departments and agencies in the federal government. And nobody on Capitol Hill we talked to even knew 
that it was created by a memo sent by President Truman in 1952, and there's no congressional charter in order to hold it to any kind of standards and accountability. In all your roamings on Capitol Hill, did you find anybody who knew about that? No, nobody. All clueless about that. They just assumed it had been there all along. It continues to operate today. Uh, when you sell them, don't you think there ought to be a charter? They aren't interested whatsoever in trying to contain the, the, what, I, what we call, Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Now I add military-industrial security complex. It's a multi-trillion dollar you know, edifice, or maybe really not an albatross around our republic. And again, it's another example of congressional abdication. And there isn't any reason why Congress could draft a charter tomorrow, require them to get warrants rather than just seizing everybody's information whatsoever. And they actually engage in what I call Orwellian talk that you would expect in his book, 1984, when Michael Hayden, in one of his books, he describes about spying on the not yet guilty. Okay, I think, ponder that. The not yet guilty, right? <laughs> it's a pretty large group. How do you know that they're not yet guilty? <laughs> oh, they're going <laughs> to become guilty, right? <laughs> I mean, yep. it's you just... You know, you, you can't even imagine this is Dr. Strangelove, you know, on going to new levels. Listeners, send your senators and representatives a simple letter and say, dear Senator, dear representative, is there a congressional charter for the National Security Agency, which has a multi-billion dollar budget? Yeah. And if there isn't, why not? I look forward to your response by return mail and then email it as well. Get them moving. You've got a great role to play, listeners, in here. Just start these Congress Watch groups as a hobby. You know, people have a stamp-collecting hobby. They collect vintage cars. They collect coins. So start a Congress Watch hobby. You'll see the impact you have and how they'll take notice, because there's almost nothing out there. Go ahead, Hannah. Thank you. Bruce, circling back to the open letter in the Capitol Hill Citizen, what would you say, you know, if I'm reading it as a staffer, as someone who's already working full time, as a lot of my plate, I'm doing all the reading that my boss doesn't want to do. If I were a staffer, what kind of support would I have available for creating programs with amongst other staffers? Is there budgeting for congressional staff associations to help make the programs more robust? What practical support is there to help staffers implement the kind of actions you're suggesting? That's a wonderful question. First of all, they should be lobbying their bosses to get more money appropriated for the, the legislative branch so they can have the resources and the consultants that come in. Secondly, they should organize. Okay, every, and I'm saying you got to be committed. Okay, every Saturday we do XYZ. Our group is going to get together. We're going to talk about how do we get information out of the executive branch? Because every person, every office confronts the problem of transparency versus secrecy. Just can't get there. Okay, this is the issue that we have on what are the various prerogatives we have historically to do this and, and, and invite speakers in like Ralph and me. I mean, Ralph and I have been in, in, in Washington over 100 years collectively, you know, it's probably more than the staff all combined, you know, and we have probably more wisdom. And so there are ways to do that. And of course, I tell them when we do our congressional tutorials and Ralph does as well, listen, I have my phone number's there. I share that with Jacob Wilson. My, my emails is there. You come over anytime. My apartment is one block from the house office buildings. Unfortunately, there are very few takers. So just give me a call if you have a question on XYZ. Here's the, here's the answer to it. Uh, or will you could look at something of that sort. So 
it's a matter of the initiative. It is true. They're not a whole, you know, it's a lot easier to spend time on TikTok than actually do something serious. But I mean, to be candid, what they ought to be doing is we need more money. We want resources. We want to be able to have consultants that we can call, you know, and, and get if there's it was specialized knowledge that we need. Now, another element that comes into play is, and Lou Fisher used to be at the Library of Congress, will give chapter and verse on that score. You know, they've slashed the, the funding for the Library of Congress. It's, it's a little, little skeleton of what it used to be. I mean, the number of top flight researchers, he says, has gone from like 35 to two and they're retiring. You know, they don't permit them to testify anymore on, on any issue of any importance. And so they've lobotomized the Library of Congress as well. Why are you doing that? This is supposed to be your think tank, you know? Why are you cutting funds? One of the big cries of lobbyists is never heard on Capitol Hill, corporate lobbyists, which is shrink. Yeah, yeah. Shrink your capacity to watchdog the executive branch. Shrink your capacity to inform the American people. Shrink your capacity to reform the tax laws. Shrink your capacity to provide a living wage or universal health care. We know what their game is. And their game is to reduce Congress to what you have called, Bruce, an inkblot, yeah. except for themselves. They want to turn Congress into a wholly owned subsidiary of Wall Street and big business. And we've let them do that. And they don't have a single vote, they not a single vote. Out. We're the ones that have the vote back home. So send a summons, as we've talked about in past shows, get a petition with a few hundred names clearly written with email in their occupation and summon your representative or senator to a town meeting where you live. And you'll be surprised how few numbers of petitioners are required to get them to come to see you and where you can eyeball them. No iPhones, no voicemail, just you in an auditorium informed, instructing the members of what you want them to go back to Washington for and enact or repeal. Is that too hard? Can you imagine the effort that Americans put in refining their skills playing bridge or chess? <laughs> I mean, there's no comparison. So if we're not serious about our democracy, guess what? Our plutocracy and oligarchy will not be serious about what they're doing to us because they can get away with it, play with us, laugh at us. So we'll have to continue this, Bruce, uh, at another time because it is the central issue. Only Congress has the constitutional authority to subordinate the power, corruption, and greed of giant business. Only Congress. And the Constitution starts with we the people, not we the corporation. Yeah, we have the sovereignty. We're not using it. So it takes less than 1% of the people, as I've said many times, if they know what they're talking about, they have public opinion behind them, and they focus on Congress to defeat these corporate lobbies. We did it in a number of areas in the 60s and 70s with only a few thousand people around the country. So get to CapitalCitizen.com, order copies, Send them to your social studies teachers who are teaching your children or grandchildren. Spread it around to town hall, to your neighbors. It's very readable, very empowering for you. Thank you again, Bruce. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Ralph. Bruce, quickly, just to follow up, 
I'm looking at the congressional handbook and uh, page on congressional staffers associations, and it's saying that House staff that are participating may only make incidental use of official resources. They have to go to the Committee on Ethics before accepting anything of monetary value from a private source. Are they hamstrung? Is there is it really just it has to be unofficial? It has to just be donating your time to to do work off the clock? It seems like they're kind of staffers are kind of hamstrung if they want to make anything happen officially. There's no money available. Well, num- number number one is that this is not like what Ralph and I are about with them is helping them perform their legislative duties and responsibilities. This this nothing could be more directly related to why they're being hired than what we're telling them. So it's not like we're giving them tips on how you fundraise, you know, how you go down the Grand Canyon or something of that sort. And I think that the fact is that no, they're not they're not handcuffed and the Congress can change the the rules at any time if they feel that they're somehow circumscribing the ability of the staff to get educated, this or that. They write them. The ethics rules are not written in the Constitution. And they should relax them if they're inhibiting the ability of their staff to learn. So as it goes back to, say, Pogo, we've met the enemy and we are they. So that's the problem. And when the enemy doesn't care if we are they, it makes it a super problem. <laughs> but it, 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 it's all of this is doable. You just need the motivation. The power structure, the architecture to get it accomplished is still unimpaired, just not used. It's just lying dormant. Finally, Steve, David, and Hannah get in on the conversation with Vishal Shankar. And Ralph has some ideas about how you can help restore the post office. Vishal, I wanted to ask you, back in 2020, the Public Citizen Litigation Group, along with the NAACP Defense Fund, sued DeJoy over mail-in balloting, to preserve mail-in balloting. What is the status of that under DeJoy's regime now heading into the 2024 election? I would have to double check on the exact status of the litigation. As I recall, the Postal Service received rather scathing reviews for its handling of mail-in balloting during the 2020 election from several federal judges from independent watchdog groups. A large part of the mail-in balloting and voting procedures leading into the 2024 elections is being managed by the Postal Board's Election Mail Committee and specifically by a Biden nominee to the board, Amber McReynolds. She is the board's only independent and is actually a vote-by-mail advocate in her background. So I will say that she has been generally very good on that issue and very good in pushing back against DeJoy's attempted sabotage of mail-in voting, especially leading into 2024. The problem is McReynolds has been largely deferential to the Postmaster General on nearly everything else, from his 10-year plan to the postage rate hikes to the electric vehicles and union-busting contract. So it, it really is a question and I, I've said this before, and I think David Dane at the American Prospect has said this before, of where McReynolds would stand if there were four other votes on the board committed to firing Louis DeJoy. I don't think that she would stand in the way if the votes were there. But the main problem is the votes aren't there. There's really only two committed opponents who would fire DeJoy if they had the chance tomorrow. And that would be Ron Stroman and Anton Hajar. David? The Postal Reform Act of 2022 help solve a problem where the post office had to pre-fund its pension for decades into the future. How solvent is the post office these days and does it need to be solvent? 
Sure. I mean, well, those are both excellent questions. So I'll start with the Postal Service Reform Act, the PSRA. So the main important thing in this law that Congress passed last year was that it eliminated the Bush era requirement that the Postal Service pre-fund its retirees' health benefits 75 years into the future, which is a requirement not made of any other federal agency or really any other private corporation. It was baked in by design by privatizers in the Republican Congress. I'm thinking specifically of multimillionaire Daryl Issa from California to artificially bankrupt the Postal Service on paper and justify calls for its privatization. So the good news is Congress repealed this pre-funding requirement last year, which I believe alleviated the budget shortfall of about two-thirds for uh, the United States Postal Service. Now, the remaining ground that it has to gain, I think, and a lot of postal advocates have argued, should be made up by expanding into new revenue sources. Not only postal banking and other non-banking financial services like ATMs or grocery delivery, but also things that Congress directly gave the post office the authority to do in that bill last year, selling hunting licenses and fishing licenses at post offices or affordable bus passes in collaboration with local governments. DeJoy has not explored any of those options. He's just doubling down on rate hikes and service cutbacks which he keeps arguing will turn a profit, but as we've seen from the latest budget numbers, are doing the exact opposite. And this gets to your second question, David, of whether we should even be running the Postal Service as a profit-seeking enterprise. I think the whole conservative mantra of running government like a business has proven itself time and time again to be a disastrous idea. Uh, Businesses cut out the most vulnerable people in their profit-seeking motives that a public service uh, would never do. This is the result of putting investment bankers and corporate executives on the postal board instead of advocates of postal expansion and of defending the postal service. So we really need to consider whether we should be restoring the postal service to the uh, cabinet agency that it was before 1970, rather than the public corporation largely run by ex-investment bankers and corporate executives that it is today. Anna? As much as I would love to continue listing all of DeJoy's shortcomings, which I'm sure we could take up a full show doing that, I'm curious if there are any inflection points coming up that if we got a better pro-post office postmaster general in, what those inflection points are that are coming up that a different postmaster general could actually do differently than you know make different choices and, and have a real impact. Well, certainly. I mean, before we look too far into the future, the single most important inflection point that I would point to right now is the opportunity that Biden has to nominate his sixth and seventh candidates to the Postal Board of Governors, and crucially, to choose the right nominees this time. So like I mentioned before, one of these could be former Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence, who was a longtime postal advocate while she was in Congress, and most critically, also enjoyed a 30-year career at the Postal Service itself, starting out as a letter carrier and ultimately ending as a senior HR executive. She is somebody who has not only talked the talk on protecting the Postal Service, but quite literally walked the walk. And I think the other seat should be filled by policy expert Sarah Anderson, who listeners can go and read her excellent reports that she's written at the Institute for Policy Studies, calling for the expansion of postal services like grocery delivery or free public Wi-Fi and the restoration of postal banking. Having somebody like Sarah Anderson on the board 
would be crucial, not just in terms of firing DeJoy, but in building the long-term vision for what the Postal Service can be long after he's gone. So I'm hesitant to speculate too far into the future because I really do think that the, the single most important thing right now is that President Biden fill these two seats, which are the last two opportunities he'll have to reshape the Postal Board before the end of his first term. Listeners, again, contact your members quickly. Affirm what you just heard. We put out two major reports on the post office, in addition to Chris Shaw's latest book, which we helped sponsor. And we've discovered that the real opportunity for people to make a post office that they're proud of is to require the post office a few times a year to deliver a paper invitation to over 120 million residences, inviting them to join a post office consumer action group. We called the POCAD, and we actually drafted the statute for it. It would be entirely voluntary, and we estimated that about 3 million people out of 120 or 125 million residential users would join, $20 a year or whatever, and this would hire full-time staff regionally and nationally to deal with complaints, but more influentially to have a seat at the table with the Post Office Board of Governors, with congressional committees, state legislative committees, and the like. Right now, you know, millions of people have to, regardless of their age and physical condition, leave their house every day and go down to the corner where the post boxes are. Well, you know, when, when I was growing up, the postmen, they were all men then, would deliver to everybody's home. And now they don't do that anymore for new housing projects. So there's all these deteriorations, like priority mail is supposed to get there in two days. Our experience is that's lucky. It often takes three days, four days, if it's from coast to coast. And you can't get your money back. There's no refund for violating what the post office assures you of when it tries to get almost 10 bucks for a priority mail envelope or package. So POCAD. And anybody who wants more information on that, just contact us here, and we'll send you a description of it so you can see whether you want to take it to the next step. It's really very simple. You know, the post office delivers all kinds of handouts and mailers, and this wouldn't cost much at all for the post office to do it. But it would empower millions of residential users representing the interests of tens of millions of residential users to turn this great historic institution around so it can fulfill its original promise. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. Democracy Now! reports the United Auto Workers Union has called for a ceasefire in Gaza. They're the largest and most mainstream labor union to publicly come out for a ceasefire, joining the American Postal Workers Union, United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, the California Nurses Association, and the Chicago Teachers Union. UAW Region 9A Director Brandon Mansilla said, quote, UAW International is calling for an immediate permanent ceasefire in Israel and Palestine so that we can get to the work of building a lasting peace, building social justice, and building a global community of solidarity, per CBS News. At the same time, UAW is, quote, launching simultaneous public organizing campaigns at more than a dozen automakers, including Toyota, 
Volkswagen, and Tesla, aiming to organize nearly 150,000 employees, which would double the number of auto workers in the union. End quote, per Bloomberg. In short, UAW is setting a new standard for labor. We hope other unions follow their lead. A new Gallup poll shows the Israeli campaign against Gaza is underwater among key segments of American public opinion. Some top-line numbers. 63% of Democrats oppose Israel's military actions in Gaza, as do 67% of adults under 35, 64% of people of color, and 52% of women. Moreover, this poll was conducted in the first weeks of November, so it is likely these attitudes have hardened since then. Responding to the protests against Israel's campaign, the House has passed a resolution classifying anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, even among American Jews. In a surprising move, high-ranking Jewish Democrat Gerald Nadler took to the floor to decry this resolution, saying, quote, The resolution suggests that all anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. That is either intellectually disingenuous or just factually wrong. And it unfairly implicates many of my Orthodox former constituents in Brooklyn, many of whose families rose from the ashes of the Holocaust. The authors, if they were at all familiar with Jewish history and culture, should know about Jewish anti-Zionism that was, and is, expressly not anti-Semitic. Semaphore reports MSNBC has cancelled Mehdi Hassan's news program. This article implies MSNBC cancelled the show because it was a quote-unquote cult favorite, which never quote, translated to ratings successes, end quote though it seems likely that Hassan's willingness to push back on Israeli talking points during this recent conflict played a role as well. Lest we forget, this is the network that canceled Phil Donahue's blockbuster news program for criticizing the Iraq war. Just Foreign Policy's Ada Chavez reports, quote, Senator Rand Paul is forcing a vote this week on getting U.S. troops out of Syria. The Syria War Powers Resolution would remove all U.S. troops, approximately 900 U.S. military personnel, from Syria in the next 30 days. Chavez highlights that, quote, U.S. forces have been targeted with dozens of attacks in Syria in recent days over U.S. support for the war in Gaza. From otherworlds.org, the Pentagon has failed yet another audit. The Mammoth Department of Defense has never passed an audit and only even completed its first in 2018. In this most recent iteration, quote, the Pentagon was able to account for just half of its $3.8 trillion in assets, including equipment, facilities, and so on, leaving $1.9 trillion unaccounted for, more than the entire budget Congress agreed to for the current fiscal year. Quote. Congress is now set to allocate an additional $840 billion for the agency. The Intercept is out with a story that could have made headlines during the populist era of the 1880s and 90s. According to the report, Dan Osborne, a military veteran and labor leader who was a key figure in the 2021 strike against Kellogg's, is running for Senate as an independent, and leading Republican incumbent Senator Deb Fisher in the polls. Osborne told The Intercept, quote, Nebraskans have had it with Washington. We've been starving for honest government that isn't bought and paid for. This poll shows that Nebraska's independent streak is alive and well, end quote. The article notes Nebraska Democrats have not yet fielded a candidate in the Senate race and are considering backing Osborne. Nebraska Democratic Party Chair Jane Klebe said many Nebraska voters are tired of one-party control in the state, arguing it, quote, makes politicians lazy and more beholden to corporate interests since they don't have to answer to voters. NBC is out with a bombshell report on carbon monoxide deaths among Airbnb renters. According to the report, quote, 
NBC News has identified 19 deaths since 2013 that occurred at Airbnb properties and are alleged to have involved carbon monoxide poisoning, according to interviews with family members of victims and a review of news articles, autopsy reports, police records, and court and government documents. The company is currently facing at least three lawsuits pertaining to carbon monoxide deaths or poisonings. End quote. Perhaps most damningly, Following one carbon monoxide-related death in 2014, the company made a blog post promising, quote, by the end of 2014, we'll require all Airbnb hosts to confirm that they have carbon monoxide detectors installed in their listing, end quote. The company never made good on that promise, and that post has since been deleted. Tesla has released its long-awaited Cybertruck, and along with it, videos of the vehicle's crash testing. These are distressing, to say the least. As the American Prospect notes, quote, the Cybertruck's body panels are made of stainless steel, which is much stiffer than ordinary automobile body materials, which makes it dangerous. Since the 1950s, at least, automakers have understood that stiffer cars are more dangerous to people inside and outside the car because in a crash, they deliver energy to other parties rather than absorbing it. In early crash test experiments with more heavily built cars, collisions often did only minor damage to the car, but turned the test dummies into paste. Since then, cars have been designed with progressively more sophisticated crumple zones to absorb impact forces. Musk's boasts of a Cybertruck exoskeleton, if true, are a recipe for gruesome carnage. Finally, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died at 100 years old. A Rolling Stone obituary, which ran under the headline, quote, Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies, argues that while Kissinger deserves to be remembered as one of, quote, history's worst mass murderers, end quote, he instead has been given a place of honor, even in death, among the American elite. One can only hope that his many, many victims will someday see justice served. This has been Francesco DeSantis, with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up, you've been sitting with-